Our scripture passage today comes from Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. So hear the word of the Lord. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> may he add his blessing to it and his blessing to our worship. Amen. You may be seated. So. Let's pray together as we get started. Lord, it truly is our desire that we would bring glory and honor and praise to you as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, you are... Um, so thankful that you are our Heavenly Father. By your own will and by your grace, you've made us your children and we can call upon you as Abba and we can sing praise to you as, as our Abba in the name of Christ Jesus. Father, we pray that your name would be hallowed among us, that the glory of your name would be sanctified in our midst, that Christ would be lifted high, that the revelation of the name of God in our Lord Jesus Christ would be clearly seen, acknowledged, rejoiced in, worshipped, believed in, not only today, but for the rest of our days until the day of eternity. Lord, many of us are distracted this morning by various things, and I, I pray, Lord, that you would by your mercy, overcome those distractions in our hearts and minds, that you, would re- uh, that you would settle us in Christ, that you would help us lay aside every other care and every other concern and every other anxiety and simply set our minds upon Christ who is seated above at your right hand, the one who is our life. Lord, help us set our minds upon you, and we pray that we would have that blessing of your perfect peace. Lord, it's, it's the ungodly who do not know the way of peace. That's what your word says. We would not be among those, Lord. We want to know the way of peace. We want to walk in the peace that is ours through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, please help us know that peace together today as your people who have gathered in your name on this Lord's day. Lord, be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, today, obviously, we, I did not read out of the Gospel of John. So we're going to take kind of a, I guess, not really a break, but we're going to segue into a peculiar passage or a particular passage in Acts chapter 20 verse 7, that kind of touches on and addresses the topic of the Sabbath that we've been looking at the past couple of weeks. Um, We've been seeing in John chapter 5 where Jesus heals this man and then commands this man to take up his bed and to walk. Uh, We've been looking at how that led to uh, contention with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem because as John 5 Verse 9 tells us Jesus did these things on the Sabbath day. And then verse 16 makes mention that it was because he did these things on the Sabbath that the Jews were not only persecuting him, but they were also seeking to kill him, counting him as being worthy of death. Now, we've been asking the question, did Jesus actually break the Sabbath? Amen. Been paying attention. Yeah. Amen, brother. Jesus did not break the Sabbath. If he had broken the Sabbath, he could not be our Savior because he would have been breaking the law of his Father. So we've been looking at that and uh, seeing that Jesus was not the one guilty of breaking the Sabbath when he did these, these things. His healing and even his command for this man to pick up his mat and to walk around in the city of Jerusalem, even that was not breaking the Sabbath. Instead, that was upholding the main purpose of the Sabbath day, right? Because Jesus was giving this man rest 
from his burden, wasn't he? This man had been burdened with an, an illness that incapacitated him for 38 years. Now Jesus has set him free. What is that man to do but to get up in the fullness of that freedom and glorify God for the healing he had received? Jesus was upholding the purpose of the Sabbath by giving this man rest. And then also by calling that man in that freedom to worship God, to worship God. Those two things are really at the heart of what keeping the Sabbath is all about. It's enjoying our rest so that we can worship God. Now, as we saw last week, it wasn't Jesus who was guilty of breaking the Sabbath, but it was the Jews with all of their arbitrary rules and their guidelines and the traditions of the elders. They were the ones who were guilty of breaking the Sabbath, right? right. Women, you can't, did, did anyone make sure that you didn't look in a mirror this morning? I'm not going to say if I see any gray hairs. <laughs> but all of those arbitrary rules that were being set down by Jewish tradition to try to help people keep the Sabbath. And in fact, what those rules signify to us is not that they were... Uh, what, okay, what those traditions signify to us is a subtle shift in the mind of the Jewish people of that time in relation to the Sabbath. Where the Sabbath had become not so much about how it could be kept, how it could be maintained, and, and the Lord could be honored on his day, what the day had shifted to was a negative focus. What you could not do on the Sabbath, right? So, so rather than focusing on the things you could do in worshiping God and making sure that the day was sanctified for his glory, it became uh, uh, inundated with this negative focus. What you can't do so that you don't break the Sabbath, and you see the shift in focus there. It's no longer about God. It's about Sabbath. Now, the Jews had missed the point of the Sabbath day, which is what Jesus is exposing in all of his six interactions with the Jews concerning the Sabbath, including this one here in John 5. And so we see that here in John 5 too, right? Because a miracle had just been performed. This guy had been sitting there for 38 years. I doubt that he had gone unnoticed by all of the leadership of the Jews in Jerusalem. And here this man is standing in the temple carrying his mat. And what are the Jews focused on? Not the fact that he had been healed, but the fact that he was breaking the law by carrying his mat. You see the focus in their hearts. It wasn't on God and what God was doing in their midst. It was on whether or not this man had been, had been keeping the tedious and arbitrary rules that they had set down for keeping the Sabbath. So that's what we've been looking at. Now, our study of Jesus and the Sabbath here in John 5 has brought up, uh, ha has brought up some questions in the minds of some of us, specifically regarding how we who are in the new covenant should think about the Sabbath day. I've made various comments through this study that would indicate that the Sabbath is continuing, even in our day for new covenant believers, that its relevance is for Believers today, what do we base that on? Where do we see that? Is, in other words, here are the questions, some of them. Is the Sabbath command still binding on Christians today? Is, well, we'll, we'll, we'll weigh that, right? We're going to weigh that, yeah. But you know my answer already. Is the Lord's Day treated as the Sabbath in the New Testament? That's an important question. Right? Because if the apostles and the early church treated the Lord's Day the way that the Jewish people treated the Sabbath, then we have a connection point between the two, right? And if they did treat the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, as the Sabbath day, what does it look like under the new covenant for us to honor the Lord on the Sabbath day? Is it the same as it looks for the old covenant? Now, these and other questions are what we're going to be seeking to answer this morning. And as you could have expected, we're going to be extending this into next week. Now, there's going to be a lot of heavy teaching in this. I'm sorry about that. I can't get around it. But what we need to remember is that doctrine and theology drives worship, right? And that's what we're after. We're after worship. Amen. What? 
Yeah, taking one step at a time. Amen, brother. And we're going to go slow so that we make sure we take those steps firmly, right? And we know where we're going. We don't trip and fall. So with that in mind, let's start looking at one of the questions that was submitted to me in regard to the Sabbath day. Um, and today we're just going to focus on this one question. So the first question comes from a statement that I made that, where I've said that the Sabbath day continues in the new covenant as the Lord's day. Okay, so from that statement, here's the question. Where in scripture do we see the Sabbath change from the seventh day to the first day or the Lord's day? Where in scripture do we see that change of the Sabbath from the seventh day to the first day? If I'm going to make the statement, I need to be able to say or prove where it is stated in scripture, right? We are wanting to be noble Bereans and making sure that what we're believing in and holding to is directly from the Word of God. So if I'm going to make a statement like that, I need to be able to point to the Scriptures and say, there it is. Now I think, as I just kind of hinted at, I think this is the most important question that we need to ask because it lays the foundation for all other questions that we're going to address concerning the Sabbath day. But this question also requires the longest answer. Okay? So that's why we're only going to be looking at that one today. So I'm going to try to answer this question in three parts. All right? And this first part has three subparts. Right? So. so we're going to be looking at three different, three different parts to the answer to this question. Where in Scripture do we see the Sabbath change from the seventh day to the first day, or the Lord's day? So part number one, the first thing we need to recognize and settle in our hearts is that in Scripture, we find the abiding nature of the Sabbath command. In other words, we see that the Sabbath command in Scripture is not abrogated anywhere in the Bible. It abides, it remains in effect for God's people. And that shows us that, or at least we can draw from that, the conclusion that the Sabbath, because it's never presented as something that has expired, remains in effect for God's people. And I want to give you three reasons for that. First of all, we've already seen this one, so this one's not a shock. First reason is that the Sabbath day is a creation ordinance. It was something instituted at creation that remains in effect so long as creation remains in existence, right? So just like work and just like marriage, so also the Sabbath day, the principle of the Sabbath day is a creation ordinance and it remains in effect so long as creation remains in existence. Like I've said, we've already seen this a couple of weeks ago, but the Sabbath day did not begin with Moses, and the Sabbath day did not begin to be observed under Israel. Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, plainly tells us that the Sabbath day was instituted by God at the beginning in creation. And it was sanctified and blessed so that it would be a day observed by His image bearers who were, who were reflecting His likeness and nature. If God him, Now, Adam was alive on the seventh day. Remember that. Right? Created on the sixth. Adam and Eve created on the sixth day. They're both alive on the seventh day. And they're watching God worship and, and rest on the seventh day. When I say worship, I mean exult in the work that he has accomplished. God is resting on the Sabbath day. What do you think Adam and Eve were doing? Do you think God just checked out and they didn't know where he was and what he was doing? No, there was fellowship between them. They recognized what God was doing on the seventh day, and they joined him in what God was doing on the seventh day. Very interesting that Adam and Eve began life in this world from the Sabbath day. Isn't that interesting? Created on the sixth, but the first day of their existence, full day of their existence in this world, was the Sabbath day, resting with God in the beauty of what he had accomplished. Now, because, because it was not instituted after humanity's fall into sin, but was laid upon us in our state of innocence, that means that Sabbath-keeping 
is not a product of the fall, but represents God's ideal for humanity. You follow that? Because Sabbath was not instituted after we fell into sin, but rather was instituted in our state of innocence, that means that Sabbath keeping is God's ideal for humanity. One day in seven, to draw away from our normal labors and the work that we are accomplishing in the world in order to focus in an undistracted manner on fellowship with God. Now, I don't know a Christian who doesn't long for that. I don't know a true believing Christian who does not long to set time aside in order to worship God. Who doesn't feel the burden of the intrusions of the world upon our focus on the Lord. You know, because this was a creation ordinance, because this was God's ideal for humanity, this is why Jesus says in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. God made the Sabbath, in other words, for the well-being of humanity. And because it belongs to God's original design and his original intention for mankind at creation, it continues to abide for mankind so long as creation continues. It continues to be in, in existence. So, so that's point number one. We see the scripture, we see in scripture the abiding nature of the Sabbath command. First of all, from the fact that the Sabbath command was a creation ordinance therefore reflects God's ideal for humanity. Number two, we see the abiding nature of the Sabbath command by the fact that Sabbath keeping functions as a sign of fellowship with God, even in the new covenant. You guys still awake? Awesome. The Sabbath day, observing the Sabbath day, functions as a sign of fellowship with God, even in the new covenant. Now, where do I see that? Well, you've got the verse reference right there. Now, clearly, we see the Sabbath day functioning like a sign for Israel, a sign of their relationship with God in Exodus 31, 13. Right? Because the Lord tells Israel, you're going to keep my Sabbath, and this will be a sign between you and me. This is going to be a symbol of our covenant relationship together. As I rested on the seventh day, so also you, as my redeemed people, are going to rest on the seventh day and observe a Sabbath unto me. So we clearly see it functioning that way for Israel. But in the prophets, and in particular the book of Isaiah we find that Sabbath-keeping continues to serve as a sign of fellowship with God even under the New Covenant and for Gentiles. For example, Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8. Here we find the Lord speaking to foreigners and to eunuchs about a future relationship that He is going to enjoy with them and that they are going to enjoy with Him. Now remember, we're talking about foreigners and we're talking about eunuchs. Now, it says in verses 6 through 7 that to those, those foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. In other words, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast to my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, says the Lord. Now, we know that this is speaking of the new covenant for a couple of reasons. Number one, under the old covenant, foreigners and eunuchs were not allowed to be in the house of the Lord, and they were not allowed to come into the holy assembly of God's people. And yet here, the Lord is calling upon foreigners and eunuchs to come gather themselves together with his people in his holy house. So we know that this is talking about a time when the Lord is gathering foreigners to the people of Israel, and that is taking place in the New Covenant. At least it did not take place under the Old Covenant. And then secondly, we also know that this is talking about the New Covenant because of verse 8. In verse 8, uh, Isaiah speaks of the Lord not only gathering Israel together to himself, but also gathering others to him. 
Now, who are those others who are being gathered to Israel in verse 8 of Isaiah 56? Just take a guess. Well, you could say spiritual Israel. Who else said something? What? Yeah. How about Gentiles? How about the foreigners and the eunuchs who are being mentioned in these verses, in the context, right? God says, I'm going to gather together Israel. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to gather others to Israel. They're going to be one. Right? So this is, and obviously this is taking place within the new covenant, right? Because that's what the new covenant church is. The new covenant church is not Gentile believers distinct from Israel. The new covenant church is, both, is believers made up of both Israel and Gentile nations. You understand that, right? This is what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 15 and 16. Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And who are the sheep? He goes on to say, not just Israel. And I have sheep that are not of this fold. What fold is he talking about? The Jews. Jesus says, I've laid my life down for the sheep, and I have sheep who are not of this fold. Jewish fold. And I must gather them too. And what does he say there? They will be one flock, and they will have one shepherd. That is the joining together of Jewish and Gentile believers in the new covenant church. This is why I'm not a dispensational. Partly. Because of Scripture, right? But verse 8 in Isaiah 56 tells us that it's during this time, this joining together of these others with Israel, that God expects those who join themselves to the Lord to keep His Sabbaths. So here's my point. God says that keeping the Sabbath is part of what it means for these foreigners and eunuchs to join themselves to the Lord. It's part of the way they express their relationship with Him. This is how they demonstrate their love for him. And, and as it says in verse uh, 6 and 7, this is how they hold fast to their covenant with Yahweh. Does everybody see that? So you understand my argument there? Clearly, Isaiah 56, 3 through 8, is talking about the time period of the new covenant. And within the time period of the new covenant, the Lord is calling upon foreigners and eunuchs to observe his Sabbath day. That's my point. Okay? So the Sabbath was established at creation. That's why it's still abiding. It's a creation ordinance. It's God's ideal for humanity. The Sabbath is said to continue even under the time period of the new covenant. And then thirdly, according to the prophet Isaiah, some form of Sabbath observance is going to be observed even in the new heaven and new earth. Isaiah 66, verses 22 through 23 where the Holy Spirit says to us, as the new heavens and new earth which I make will abide or remain before me, declares the Lord, so shall your descendants remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me. Now we could get into the discussion about the old covenant forms that the Sabbath keeping is being described in here. But what I want to point to is simply the fact that God is speaking here about a Sabbath principle that's being observed by all flesh in the new heavens and new earth. You see that? You agree with that? Or are you just kind of like, oh, I don't care? <laughs> we should care about this, and I'll explain that in, in just a little while. And so even in new creation... It says here that there's going to be some kind of cycle of time that is punctuated by days of worship. And those days of worship are described here as Sabbaths. So some form, apparently, of Sabbath keeping is going to be in the new heaven and new earth. And if we just think about this for a minute, this really does make sense, right? Because if we remember the principles, the purpose for the Sabbath day, we realize we never grow out of our need for what the Sabbath day was established to, to accomplish in us. So, for example, as creatures, do we ever grow out of our need to rest? 
some of us think we don't need to rest, right? That's what coffee's for, right? No, but as creatures, we, we never grow out of our need to rest. To rest from our work, to rest from our normal labors, to give our mind a break from the normal load that we carry throughout the week, to give our bodies time for respite, time to recover from from the work that we have been doing throughout the rest of the week. No, God has made us in such a way that we require rest. It's part of our makeup as creatures. And so what a grace from God to have a day of rest built into our weekly lives, right? Where the Lord says, you rest today. Don't let the pressures of everything you need to get done overwhelm you. You rest with me today because that's good for you. You need that. Or what about the other side of Sabbath keeping? Do we ever lose our need as creatures to set aside special time to focus on and worship God? No, we don't. Now, some may say, well, in the new covenant, we we just worship as we go. Every day is the same. It's all alike. We don't need to sanctify a specific day to worship the Lord. We can just worship all the time. Well, kind of like how people speak of prayer, right? I don't need to set aside a specific time to pray because I just pray as I go. I pray throughout the day. I just constantly offer up prayers to the Lord throughout the day. Well, listen, I applaud you in aiming to do that, but here's what I'm going to say. If the only kind of prayer you're doing is the kind of prayer that is throughout the day, if you're never sanctifying to yourself that kind of closet prayer that Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 6, then the praying throughout the day as you go is going to dissipate and dwindle. It needs to be bolstered by the kind of private prayer that Jesus calls us to in Matthew 6. Well, it's the same way with the Sabbath day, guys. If you want to be strengthened to worship the Lord throughout the week, you can't do that by by refusing to, or you're not going to be strengthened to do that by refusing to honor a full day of seeking to worship the Lord together with His people, together in your family, by yourself, fixing your mind on the Lord. Just like with prayer, I think that we do well to set aside a time to to specifically focus our attention on the Lord and worshiping Him. So the Sabbath is like like that principle in prayer. It's a day of worship that strengthens us to worship God throughout the other days of the week. And you know, when I was a new believer, I felt that far more powerfully. When I was a new believer, I, I knew something of the power of corporate fellowship that seemed to dwindle over time. But as I think back, I remember feeling excited to come to the worship gathering of God's people on Sundays. I remember like anticipating that time and feeling strengthened to go face the rest of the week because of the fellowship with God that I was having with His people on the Lord's Day. Have you ever experienced that? That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Where fellowshipping before God with his people becomes a strengthening element in our lives and helps us worship the Lord throughout the rest of the week. So that's, that's one reason why, uh, that's one part of the answer to where in scripture do we see Sabbath change from seventh day to first day. One part of that answer is seeing in scripture that the Sabbath command is abiding for us. And... Uh, doesn't pass away. Now, secondly, second part of the answer to that question comes from church history. It's a testimony of church history. Christians have been saying for the majority of 2,000 years that under the new covenant, the day of worship changed from the seventh day to the first day. And the reason they say that is because of what happened on the first day of the week. Now listen to the way that the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith puts this. This is chapter 22, paragraph 7. And just capturing the mind of the church throughout history on this matter, the 1689 Confession says, As it is of the law of nature... 
that in general, a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so by his word in a positive moral and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him. Now that's just talking about the general principle of offering unto the Lord a day of worship. That's all that's saying, okay? Now, it's, it goes on to say, from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, this day was the last day of the week. But from the resurrection of Christ, this day was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. Now, I read that to you because, first of all, it was written by Baptist 300 years ago. This is a historic position of Baptist when it comes to the Sabbath, but also because it presents to us the thinking of the church throughout history. Okay? Now, not everyone agreed in church history on how the day of the Lord was to be observed as a Sabbath. But what they did agree on was that something took place on the first day of the week that was so significant, it demanded a change in the day of worship from the last day to the first day. That's what the church has stated throughout history. Now, what was that change? Well, it's very simple. It's the resurrection of Christ. What was that change? It was the resurrection of Christ from the dead, which signaled to the entire world the beginning of a new creation. So you have the seventh day Sabbath that was a mark of original creation, where God created all creation and then rested on the seventh day. He entered into his rest. And that day became, observing the seventh day Sabbath, became a sign of fellowship with God under the old covenant. But in the new covenant, we have a new day of rest that belongs to a new creation. A new day of worship that is signaling the, or that is a mark of fellowship within the new covenant. So they just said the seventh, the seventh day Sabbath was based upon old creation. God worked six, day, six days, he entered his rest on the seventh, and that became a pattern for mankind to follow. And it taught man an important principle. That there was a divine rest for mankind to achieve after his work was done. Right? So, so just as God entered into his rest after he finished his work of creation, so also humanity was to enter into its rest after it finished its work of subduing and ruling over the creation for the glory of God. See, God finished his work, he entered into rest. Mankind was to follow that same pattern. Man does his work first and then enters into his rest. And until that work was done, there was a Sabbath day that was kept every week as a celebration of being one step closer to entering into God's rest. You guys follow me there with the first creation? Now, Adam failed to enter that rest because of his sin, right? But this is where the Sabbath preaches the gospel to us. Because where Adam failed, the new and better Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, has succeeded. So the Father sent the Son into this world in order to be a new and perfect man. And he faithfully completed the work that his father gave him to do. So, for example, Jesus Christ came as the perfect man in order to fulfill perfect righteousness as a man. Jesus came as the perfect man in order to redeem sinful humanity through his atoning death. He withstood the temptations of the devil to the very bitter end. He was obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then as Jesus was hanging on that cross just before he gave up his spirit, what were the words that he uttered? He said, it's finished. It's finished. What's finished? The work. The work is finished. The work that my Father gave me to do, it's done, it's completed, it's over. I finished my task, my task, job well done. And the Son of God gives up His Spirit. And then what did He do next? 
this is glorious. You need to see this. I love studying this. I love the fact that you guys pay me to sit around and study this all week. Maybe you don't. (laughs) But I love this. Listen to what happens after the Son of God dies on the day before the Sabbath. What does he do on the next on that Sabbath day? He rests. Have you ever wondered why why 3 days? Why did Jesus have to be put to death on the Friday rather than some other day of the week? Why did Jesus not rise again from the dead? On Saturday, the Sabbath day of the week. Why the third day? Why the first day of the next week? Well, it's because in his dying, Jesus was fulfilling the entire purpose for the first creation, wasn't he? In his perfect righteous life, he accomplished everything that God intended humanity to be. He became the perfect one who learned obedience through the things which he suffered. Hebrews 5.8. He had to learn those things as a man. Yes, he was God incarnate. Yes, he was God in the flesh. But he had to live a perfect life as the perfect man in order to be our Redeemer. And when he finished that work of righteousness, he gave himself over as a perfect sacrifice for all those whom he was going to redeem out of that old creation. He finished the work on the last day of the old creation, and then he rested on the final Sabbath day of the old creation. Yeah, amen. If that doesn't excite you. The final Sabbath day of the old creation. The son of God's body laying in a tomb, right? Just picturing what the old creation accomplished. What did the old creation accomplish? Death. What did Adam accomplish for his descendants? Not life. Not Sabbath rest. Not entering into God's own rest. Adam accomplished death. And here on the final Sabbath day of the old creation, the Son of God is here pictured, smothered in, consumed by what was accomplished in the old covenant, death. And yet at the same time, where was his spirit? Resting with his Father in heaven, with the whole company of redeemed saints who had hoped in him before he came. Amen. The Son of God fulfilled the entire purpose and meaning, the entire intention behind the old covenant, and it reached its climax, behind the old creation, and it reached its climax when he gave up his spirit on the cross saying, it is finished. It's done. But there was still one more work that was necessary in order to accomplish the task and the charge that the Father had laid upon him. In order for the Son of God to redeem the ruined creation, the Son of God had to rise again from the dead. And you you gotta get this. When Jesus rose from the dead, he raised everything up with him. Not just his people, he rose up all the earth. He sanctified the entire universe. He's going to bring in the fullness of the Sabbath rest that he accomplished in his death, that he entered into in his resurrection. He's going to bring the fullness of all of that to bear upon this world one day. This was a monumental, cataclysmic shift in reality when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And the early Christians recognized that. On the first day of the week, the day of Christ's resurrection, the God, listen, listen to this. On the first day of the week, the day of Christ's resurrection, the God-man, Jesus Christ, brought human nature into God's eternal rest. How? How did he do that? By becoming the first man to rise up from the old fallen creation and to enter that promised rest that had been held out to mankind in the very beginning of creation. Jesus entered that rest on the day of his resurrection. And you see the gospel pictured here so perfectly, right? 
that, 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 that the seventh day Sabbath, what, what, was that, what was that picturing for man? That was laying down for him a rule and a principle that if you want to enter rest, you must work. You work six days, then you enter rest. You work first, then you enter your rest. Not so in the new covenant. Because Jesus Christ has finished that work, right? He worked his six days. He entered into his rest. And now in the new covenant, the day, the Sabbath day of worship for us is not the seventh day that follows all of our own work. It's the first day out of which we go forth and do our work. We begin the week in Christ Jesus already resting with God in His eternal rest. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you Shabbat. You will know perfect rest with God if you come to me. And Christians come to Jesus Christ and we experience that rest. And we celebrate that rest on the first day of the week, the day of His resurrection. And then we go out into the world and we work for His glory. Not to earn anything from him, because Christ has already earned it all. But to rejoice in him, to fellowship with him, to give thanks to him. To glorify his name for all he's done to save us from our ruin. That's what first day Sabbath is all about. And that's what the Christian church has held on to for 2,000 years. See, that's why Christians observe the Sabbath day of worship on the first day of the week and not the seventh because under Christ and in the new creation that Jesus is bringing about, it's no longer the seventh day that is blessed and sanctified by God's rest. Under the new covenant, it is the first day that is now blessed and sanctified because that is the day that God the Son, as the perfect man, entered into his eternal rest. And that's why we Remember him in a very particular way on the Lord's day, the first day of the week. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, that, all that sounds good, but where do we actually see that in the scriptures? That's the third part of my answer to the question. What is the testimony of scripture? Well, when we come to the New Testament... We find the apostles and early Christians doing on the first day of the week. This is the heart of my answer. When we come to the New Testament, we find the apostles and early Christians doing on the first day of the week what believers in the Old Testament would only do on the seventh day of the week. You follow that? So the activities of worship that were offered to the Lord on the seventh day Sabbath under the Old Covenant. Those are the same activities of worship that we find Christians offering to God on the first day of the week, not the seventh. So, for example, in the Old Testament, the most important feast day, or, or maybe at least the most regular feast day in the life of Israel, was the celebration of the weekly Sabbath. So Leviticus chapter 23 the Lord speaks of six days that they would work, but the, Sabbath is, the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. You see it says there, a, a holy convocation of the people. You know what a convocation is. That's, that's a, a holy assembling together of the people of God. Uh, and, and, and the Lord says, this will take place in all of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Now, a number of things just to point out from, from that. Every single Sabbath, God's people were to gather together in their dwellings. Now, what does that require? That requires local congregations to gather together in their dwellings. Because you can't travel from northern Israel down to Jerusalem every single week in order to observe the Sabbath day. Right? You've got to have a local congregation, a local assembly that you are a part of in order to follow through on this command. And that became known as the synagogue. Okay? That's really important to keep that term in mind, synagogue. Keep it in mind for just a minute. Now, we know from other scriptures the kind of activities that people would do in these assemblies, right? So Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 149, verse 1, 
it tells us that in these assemblies, of the, the assembly of the saints, they would sing praises to God. In Psalm 35, verse 18, we find prayer being offered unto the Lord in the assembly. And in Acts 15, verse 21, we learn that the word of God was read and preached to the people every single Sabbath day. So you've got preaching of the word, teaching, instruction, you've got prayer, you've got singing, all happening together on the Sabbath day. These are all elements of worship that were being offered unto the Lord. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we see the church doing those same things together, but they're not doing them on the seventh day. They're doing them on the first day. So as we read in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, the day that was designated for the church to gather together to do these, these acts of worship, to participate in the worship of the Lord, was the first day of the week, right? It says it right there. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Now, notice just all the elements of worship that are communicated to us right there. You've got the disciples coming together. <laughs> if you want to know the Greek word there, it's sunigmen, sunigmenon. There it is. You can hear within that sunigmenon. You can hear within that synagogue. Right? So what were the disciples doing there? Well, they were synagoguing. They were gathering together in their local places, their dwelling place. This is in Troas. This isn't in Antioch. This isn't in Jerusalem. This is a local gathering of believers in Troas where they are synagoguing together. You see the purpose for them synagoguing together. It was to do what? It was to break bread. What's that talking about? Just sharing food? In Acts chapter 2, we find what that means, right? Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The disciples gathered themselves together continuously in the temple, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and to fellowship and the prayers. Right? So that's a verse depicting for us what an early worship service of believers looked like. They would gather together. They would devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, meaning they would listen to the apostles preach to them. And they would break bread. And they would offer prayers. This is talking about participating in communion. When it speaks of them gathering together to break bread. Which, by the way, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 20 tells us that believers only celebrated the Lord's Supper when they gathered together as a church. So the, the celebration of the Lord's Supper is, is, a, is a communal celebration. It's, it's not to be an individual uh, uh, fellowship. It's something that you do with the body of Christ. Well, they gathered together for the purpose of breaking bread. And then what were they doing in this meeting together? What was Paul doing? Preaching. Paul was preaching. He was delivering them a message, right? And a very lengthy message. In fact, it goes on to say later on in the passage that after he raises this young man up from the dead, after the Lord does that through Paul, Paul continues his message until dawn. In revival, time doesn't exist. As Duncan Campbell would say. So we have them coming together. We have them breaking bread. We have them listening to the word of God preached. In Acts chapter, four, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 42, we find them devoting themselves to prayer. All of these are parallel activities that we see Old Covenant believers doing on the seventh day worship, right? These are the things that Jewish believers would be doing in synagogues under the Old Covenant. And yet here we find believers doing it on the first day of the week. Now what does that signal to us? What does that say to us? Doesn't it show us how the, the apostles and the early disciples understood the first day of the week? That it wasn't just a random day that they chose to get together because it was convenient. That there was something that was sanctified about that day. And that's why they gathered together to worship. What was it that was so sanctifying about that particular day? Obviously, it was a day of Christ's resurrection. And that makes sense. Because 
because that was the day that Christ rose from the dead, that was the only appropriate day for Christ's disciples to gather together and worship him. So the New Testament shows that worship on the first day was practiced by the early church as a Sabbath day of the new covenant. A Sabbath day of worship that was offered unto the risen Lord who had entered into his own eternal rest. Now you can see this depicted in other passages in the New Testament. I don't have time to go through them all, but you can see this in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 2. You can see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 through chapter 14. You can see this in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10 where John was in the Spirit on the Lord today. You know, you and I are commanded to be in the Spirit in many different ways in the New Testament. And every single time, what that, what that means is worshiping. You're commanded to pray in the Spirit. Right? Build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying at all times in the Spirit. Well, that's what John was doing when he's exiled on the island of Patmos. And it just happened to be the Lord's day. He's worshiping on that day. You can study that out for yourself. Now, here's, here's my point. Here's the point of, of the whole morning. So stay with me just a little bit longer. <clears throat> See, the resurrection of Christ from the dead is an epic-changing event. Meaning that it's an event that ushers in the glory and the reality of the new age that is yet to come. So when Christ rose from the dead, the power and the glory of the age that is coming broke in upon the age that's now. Uh, For example, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, it says that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. What that means is his resurrection shows the world what the age to come is going to look like for God's people. He's the first fruits. He's the first one brought forth. And all those who are united to him as his people are going to follow him. There's a day coming, beloved, where you are going to be raised up with Christ in his resurrection glory. Not your glory, but Christ's glory. You're going, he's the first fruits, and everything that's true about him is going to be true about you one day, as far as his human nature is concerned. You're not going to be the Son of God. Hate to break that to you. But you are going to be conformed to the body of his glory, as it says in Philippians 3. He's the first fruits. And when he rose again from the dead, what he was doing was bringing into the world the realities of the glory of the age that's to come. And even now, if you are a Christian in this room, even in this present age, you have become a partaker of that new creation. You know that. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is what? He's a new creation. You are a new creature in Christ if you are a believer. And this speaks to the radical nature of salvation. This was not a mere decision that you made. This was not you choosing to follow Jesus as opposed to choosing to follow the devil. This was the Son of God coming with power into your life by the Holy Spirit and making you something new. Bringing the realities of heavenly glory that is yet to come and pressing them into your soul and leaving behind an indelible mark of glory that belongs to Him. You become something radically different. So, so, so the new creation that Jesus Christ has, has, has brought into existence by his own resurrection from the dead, if you're a believer, you've already tasted of the reality of that. And there's no going back. Right? This is why Christians persevere to the end, because they can't turn away from the very core reality that the Lord has worked into them. We know the truth. And the truth has set us free. This is, this, I love the way that Hebrews 6 presents this. We always see this in negative terms because it's talking about those who merely taste it but don't really ingest it in its fullness and they wind up falling away. But, but pay attention to the way this is describing the effects of the Spirit's ministry upon a person's life. We are those who have been enlightened by the truth. That, that means there's this inner illumination that has taken place. 
We are those who who have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. The good word of God and the powers of the age to come have come upon us and we have tasted their reality. Now there are some who merely taste but fall away, but you need to recognize in a much greater and fuller reality, if you are a Christian, you have experienced all of that. You've been made a partaker with the Holy Spirit. Has not the power of the age to come come upon your own soul? Isn't that what broke you free from your sin? Look at me. Is it, have you tasted the power of the age that's coming? Has the goodness of the Word of God come upon your heart and broken you free from your love affair with darkness? Has the power of Christ come upon you and made you something radically different? Where you can honestly say with a clean conscience, yes, I'm not perfect, but yes, old things have passed away and all things have become new for me in Christ. Do you know that? This is what happens when we are regenerated. When we have been born again, to use the words of John 3. It means that we have been born out of the age that's passing away. And we have been born into the age that's coming. And yes, right now, we live in the already not yet. That's what we call it. It's already a reality, but it's not yet in its fullness. If you, if you are in Christ, you have definitively been made new even though you continue to struggle with sin. You have definitively been made new in Christ. Beloved, that's what sanctifies the Lord's day for us as a day of worship. It's a day where we remember when Christ our Savior Our God and Savior rose from the dead and entered his eternal rest, but it's also a day when we come together to remember that we have been united to him in his glory, and one day we will taste it in its fullness. That's what Sabbath day is all about. That's why these disciples of Jesus in Acts 27, 20 verse 7, that's why it was the disciples who were gathering together on that day. They were identifying with Christ by gathering together on that day for worship. And that became a sign. That became a symbol that they were those who were united to the Lord of glory. And they were every week anticipating the breaking in of that glory in all of its fullness one day. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Just like the Lord's table, it's a picture of a greater meal that's coming. So the Lord's Day is a picture of a greater day of fellowship and eternal rest that's coming. Now, as, as we close, I, 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 I really struggle. I honestly cannot understand why Sabbath Day is such a contentious issue. I really don't get it. I don't understand why this is something that Christians are so bothered about. What is it about sanctifying the Lord's Day as a special day of worship that is troubling to Christians in our time? Why does it seem burdensome to say that this is the day that ought to be set aside for rest? (laughs) Right? Why is that a burden? Why is it burdensome to say that this is a special day for remembering in a unique way the good news of our hope in Christ Jesus? Why is that such a burden and so restrictive in people's minds? Could that sense of burden merely be a sign that our priorities are off? That the day that's supposed to be sanctified unto the Lord is in your own heart, in reality, sanctified for other things? I mean, don't you feel... Christian, don't you feel the burden of living life in this fallen world all throughout the week? 
Like, don't you feel the, the weight of it all seeming as if it's going to drag you down into that pit of despair? Don't you know that weight of the world that seems at times to hang around your neck? Don't you grow weary of the fight? All throughout the week, you are called to be in warrior mode. Everybody listen. All throughout the week, you are called to be in warrior mode. You're going out and you're fighting a battle. You're fighting a war against the prince of the power of the air who is at work in the sons of disobedience all around you. You are fighting a war against the world of hostile sinners who hate Christ and who hate you because you belong to Christ and who will spit in your face when you seek to give them the good hope that they need. They need to know about Jesus as Savior. They need to know about Jesus as Lord. They need to reckon with the reality that the judgment is coming. And they need to flee for a place to Christ as a place of refuge. They will, they will hate you for telling them that. And that's the war that you're called to engage in, Christian. And on top of all that, you have the, the, the incessant labor and fight and struggle against your own body of death that you won't be rid of until the day you take your last breath. All week long, you are striving and wrestling and laboring and fighting the good fight of faith. Don't you think that one day a week would be something that you would look forward to if on that day you had a momentary and in a slight measure a, a disengagement from the intensity of that battle. If you've been fighting all week, Sunday will be a great joy to you. And I think the Lord's Day is not that kind of joy for most people because they are not fighting throughout the rest of the week. When you're surrounded by unbelievers all week and you're fighting that good fight to lift high the, the light of the gospel and you feel the resistance coming against you all the time, what a joy and what a relief it is to walk into a gathered assembly of saints who have been fighting that same fight with you all week. You come into this room and all of a sudden it's no longer a challenge to speak so gloriously of the light of Christ with other people. Because everyone in here has the same desire. We want to see Christ lifted high. And it's a refreshing time when you pull away from that battle and you come to be with the people of Christ. That's so much more, but Hebrews chapter 4. Christ has finished his work and he has entered into the rest of his Father. And I want you to know something. Christ did not enter into that perfect, complete, eternal Sabbath rest for himself alone. He entered into that rest for you, Christian. Remember Hebrews chapter 6. He, he has gone behind the veil to be an anchor for our soul. Jesus has gone into that rest for us. What remains for us to do? Verse 11. Simply to be diligent to make sure that we're entering into that rest. Now that's good news. Because what that tells us is that the Christian life is not a life of striving to attain rest. It's a life of seeking to more fully live in the rest that's ours in Christ. You're not working for that rest. Christ has earned that rest for you. All you're doing is seeking to make sure you're not distracted. That you are abiding in Christ the vine as a branch. That you are paying much closer attention to what you've heard lest you drift away from it. That you are encouraging one another day after day as long as it's called today so that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and have a heart that turns away from the living God. 
The only thing you're doing is seeking to lay aside every weight and hindrance that keeps you from running with all your spiritual might, this race that the Lord has set before you. As you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. That's the Christian life. Let me see Jesus more fully. And that is what the Lord's Day is all about. Now, I, I hope that this was helpful. I hope this was clarifying in some way. We'll pick this back up next week, but let me end on this. Jesus calls us in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest and you will find rest for your souls. Believer and unbeliever in this room, that's Christ's call for you today. You come to Christ. You rest from your own works and you come to him. And he will give you rest with his Father. That's the good hope of the gospel. May you know it. And may you know it more fully every day and the week ahead. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace. And we thank you for the, the reality that you have accomplished all our works. You have done them. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have you have completed the righteousness before your Father in our place that was expected of us. We thank you that we've been made worthy by your blood and your righteousness to enter into that eternal rest with you. Lord, please build within us a greater anticipation of that day that's coming and help us even today continue to be diligent to enter that rest. Lord, be with us, bless us, Fill us with your spirit. Help us live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. May your benediction. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And that is our hope. May you rest well this Lord's day in that hope. Amen. 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 Go in peace.